0: this is where we remember truth to make the world a better place one person at a time i'm claire lotier inspirational speaker teacher of the technology of transformation and a certified life mastery consultant and spiritual coach welcome to the grace
1: space many years ago when i was finishing my last year at the juilliard drama division we had a class with a well-known casting director in new york He would come in once a week and we'd sing or do scene work as if we were auditioning for a role in the real world. Based on our mock audition, he would cast whoever he thought had earned the part. The idea was to give us a taste of what it was like out there and why it wasn't always fair, why one person was cast over another, how it often had to do with considerations we had zero control over. Sometimes it was about how well we did in an audition, but often, even if you gave the best audition of your life, the part wasn't yours. It just wasn't yours. It was someone else's turn. My favorite part of class was when he would tell us what we looked like to casting, how we would be seen and pigeonholed based on our appearance and performance in the room. Well-bred wasp, sweet, innocent ingenue. (laughs) He was often bluntly honest, never cruel, just real, and he loved talent. I trusted him. Over time, I developed a real affection for this casting director, who for some reason took to calling me Gracie, even though he knew my name. I don't know why I call you that. You just look like a Gracie to me, he would say. (laughs) It never bothered me that he called me that. It felt like a term of affection. It felt like he saw something of grace in me and it made me feel good. I remember one time singing an old chestnut called Make the Man Love Me as one of my mock audition pieces. I happened to be in good voice that day and I think it was partly his presence. I felt like a flower blooming under his approving eye. So I sang from the heart effortlessly. I got the job that day in class. You gotta have a voice like Gracie's if you wanna be on Broadway, he announced to the class. He took me under his wing and was responsible for some of the important early wins of my career, but I couldn't share with him the petrifying fear that was slowly gaining on me. I wanted to succeed for him, to repay his faith in me. I didn't want to let him down, but I did. Over the years, he became someone dear to me in the business. He was always honest with me and continually championed my talent. Even when I flopped in the room after he had talked me up to a director. Even when I stopped being able to sing and began to shut down. Even when I could see him perplexed and saddened by my failure to thrive. Once or twice during an audition, I found him looking at me with a real tenderness that touched my heart. Even though I was ashamed of my failures of courage, even though I had squandered the capital of his endorsement of my talent and the many opportunities he had put in my path over the years, I still felt love coming from him. And Gracie became a sweet sound to me that meant someone on the other side of the table genuinely cared. Many years later, the first time I had a personal session of counseling with my teacher, He did my numerology and he said, your path is the path of grace. I didn't ask for elaboration, but it resonated with me because of the powerful way that I had come into his orbit in the first place. There was such a clear feeling of grace acting in my life. And until I felt it, I had never really considered what grace was. There is a direct knowing of the heart that bypasses the mind altogether. Until you know it, you don't know it. You think you know it, but you don't. The mind can only know about things. It cannot know directly. The heart, the heart is a whole different dimension of pure direct experience and knowingness of truth. The recognition of grace that first time I met my teacher was a direct knowingness of the heart, luminous and simple. Even after so many years, I cannot describe what that feeling was in words or what grace is in any way that is true to the knowingness of it. There literally are no words in the heart, only direct Pure, simple knowingness that is deeper by far than that of the mind. Actually, they have nothing to do with one another. I have a whole podcast dedicated to this concept that I cannot express. Every definition I've ever read of grace points in the direction but cannot deliver the feeling. Any more than reading a book about peaches can give you the smell and taste of a peach until you know what it is from your own experience. Then you get. The peach, and no one else can tell you anything about it, and you don't need a book about it unless you just enjoy reading about them. Nothing can add to your experience of peachness once you've had it, even if you've only had it once. What can I say about the grace of that week years ago in the Alps, except that it felt like someone on the other side of the table genuinely cared. No matter how much I had screwed it up and failed, wasted my potential, been ungrateful and childish and lost my way, like my old dear casting director, some divine power still loved this prodigal child enough to offer it a chance at salvation. And I realized that that love was never going to end. It was a divine, eternal romance. I had arrived there that week feeling directionless and untethered from my familiar moorings, having let go, as I recounted last time, of the need to have life go a certain way anymore. I had accepted the defeat of my agenda and ambitions, at least in one respect, which was my life as an actor. I was willing to be no one in particular. For a while, the ego was by no means dead and gone, and it wasn't long before I found that out, in spades. But there was a definite crack in the armor where the light could pour in. I was more open than I had ever been to something. By the end of the training week, life had a direction again. I was going straight to the center of my being. At least, I could see a path lighting up before me. And now it was do I follow it? And how do I follow it? Because the outward direction Of that inward path lay far away from home i knew that i needed to be with this teacher in this place in the french alps but the game board of my life for the next year was set up in opposition to that possibility it was the beginning of march and i had a job to start a contract already signed that kept me busy and unable to leave canada for the next eight months and therefore unavailable, to come back to France for two more week-long modules of training, one in June and one in September. But more than the practical logistics of the situation, was the almost insupportable intensity of longing I had to come back into the presence of my teacher. I felt it was absolutely necessary and non-negotiable for doing the work I knew I had to do. I didn't understand why at the time, I didn't know much about energy, I didn't know anything about resonance, but intuitively, I knew it was appropriate for me, and that I had been directed to him for exactly that reason. And there was just this implacable certainty in that conviction, knowingness. Now I was flying back to Canada, I could think of nothing else but being in France again as soon as possible. And my mind was in a frenzy of anxiety about the fact that my obligations made it impossible. I kept the image of my teacher inside my mind like an idol. I realize that may sound a bit strange. In fact, during the early years of my constant traveling back and forth to the ashram, well-meaning family members and a friend or two ventured the tentative question of whether I was all there mentally with this thing. Was I joining a cult? No. Was I in love with the teacher, maybe? No. Was there something weird going on? Well, at my teacher's ashram, weird things are the order of the day, so I guess that answer would have to be yes. (laughs) Weird by most people's standards, yes. But not to the serious spiritual student. I get it. You upend your life, people are bound to wonder. I remember reading in the autobiography of a yogi, my early years of spiritual searching, the way the young Yogananda was always pining to be with his master and running off to the Himalayas and finding all that a bit fraught and overly emotional to my mind at the time. And then completely understanding when it happened to me. It was the moment of the peach. I get it. And I knew that it had not so much to do with the personage of the teacher, though it's easy to confuse it with that at the beginning, but with what the teacher represents, the igniting of an inner longing for home that becomes all consuming and almost unbearable. You know that you felt closer to it in the presence of the teacher. You know that you tasted something, if only for a moment, that is beyond everything you thought was important. You don't even know what it is, but you sense it. You felt the vibration of truth. And once that happens, you're done. You will never be satisfied with anything less than the revelation of your own true nature. You do go a little bit crazy. You have to. It takes a truly powerful impact to wake you up from the hypnosis of the world. And even the briefest moment of insight and experience of that infinite self in another dimension is enough to pretty well turn everything inside out. One of the attributes of a true teacher is the power of their field. By virtue of what they themselves have become, they change a room. It's their frequency. They walk in, and everything just goes up to a higher level because their very presence entrains your own vibration to a higher frequency. Another attribute of a true teacher is that there's no one there, no personal self with desires or needs or an agenda. They want nothing from you. They are a conduit for truth and that is all. That enables you to shift to a higher perspective than you're accustomed to and it recontextualizes problems and questions. It also makes it unlike any other relationship you've ever had because no other relationship you've ever had is so free of expectation and agenda, unless your friends and family are already enlightened. So you see if you're ready to transcend to a higher level of consciousness, if that call from the soul is there and you answer it and you have the grace to encounter a true teacher with a greater spiritual angle than your own, it is an irresistible magnet that draws you inexorably. But not by personal charisma or spiritual seduction. It's truth and your own spiritual destiny of realization that draws you to itself. You are drawing you to yourself. You are in the teacher. There's no difference. But at first you don't see it that way. And all you want is to be in the presence of that truth of that truth that appears to be that person which is really your own true self. I had encountered this energy once before in India at the ashram where we had our month-long kundalini yoga teacher training intensive when I first became a teacher. The spiritual head of the ashram in Rishikesh was known to all as Swamiji, a tireless dynamo of good in the world, as well as a gifted administrator, which is a pretty unique combination of talents. He was not leading our training. You understand his ashram was hosting us. Uh, and hosting Gurumuk, a famous American kundalini yoga teacher, and my first teacher, and all of us in her training. And they had done so for a number of years. So Gurumuk and Swamiji knew each other, and we benefited by that uh, relationship. We had the gift of being able to spend some time with Swamiji during our intensive literally the first encounter with him almost blew over the gal that I was with who was in the training with me it was our second day in the ashram or something we we're just wandering around and the ashram was right on the Ganges river and every day at three o'clock there was a ceremony sacred arti, the fire ceremony was right on the river gats outside the ashram gates and uh, on the on the steps that were going down into Ganga Ganga that's what they call the Ganges there and when Swamiji was in residence, he would always lead sacred arti ceremony every day. And we didn't know anything. We were just wandering by. We had occasion to, to, to actually attend arti thereafter as a group several times, along with whatever visiting celebrity Swamiji might be receiving. <laughs> that often happened. So Aarti is a beautiful ceremony with candles and flowers and singing and chanting all in Sanskrit. Well, that day my friend and i brand new wet behind the ears happened to arrive at the ashram entrance as swamiji and his entourage were returning from rt ceremony so there were tons of people around he was surrounded and we were among a number of people who were milling around in the general area but it was as if he picked us out of the crowd as new arrivals i can't explain it but as he walked by he put his hands up in prayer in front of his face and he looked at me And he looked at my friend, both of us directly in the eyes from across the courtyard. And he was on his way somewhere. He was just blowing by. You know, you could tell he was a man with many demands on his time. And there was both acknowledgement and efficiency in the gesture. I stared after him because I did indeed feel as if he had connected with me. I felt seen and his presence was magnetic. When I turned back to my friend, I found her sobbing in a heap on a nearby bench that went right through me she said it took her a few minutes to recover we had the opportunity to meet as a group with swamiji right towards the end of our three-week training and we were instructed that we were very blessed and fortunate to be allowed to into his private garden all 111 of us there were 111 people in the training and we were to prepare our questions so that we could use the time efficiently It was nighttime and Swamiji was seated on the raised platform lit by some candles and the rest of us were crowded into every square inch of that garden. I was a couple of yards from him and I don't remember much about the content of the evening anymore except that there was jasmine on the breeze (laughs) and that whatever questions I had prepared disappeared from my mind once we were there. I felt no question arise in his presence. My mind was quiet. All I wanted to do was sit there and I don't recall much except for a feeling of peace and tranquility. I recognized I think that I was under the influence of a higher field than my own. I was grateful. Uh, And I recognized that questions were totally pointless. You would have to be in the dimension in the mental body right and in his presence I felt lifted into a different dimension of my being I was in the heart and in that space it was clear that his presence was the answer to any question truth was present and that was complete there was nothing to add to it at the end Everyone got up and there was the usual rush of people trying to get to him for personal contact. You could feel the avidity of people wanting a piece of him. (laughs) I mean, that must be what it's like to be a, a celebrity, right? I went the opposite direction of the crowd toward the back of the garden and I watched the scene from about 30 feet away as he was surrounded. There was kind of a feeling of wistfulness as I realized I would likely not be in the presence of this great one again. At that moment, he seemed once again to be aware of me, and he looked out beyond the throng directly into my eyes, put his hands in prayer at his third eye, and gave a nod in my direction. I felt something roll through me, like a very subtle wave, like he had sent me some energy or a blessing. Again, I didn't understand it, but I took it away with me, knowing that It was precious. You understand, this was not about me. It wasn't about something personal between him and me. I'm trying to illustrate to you a kind of a level of awareness that uh, certain uh, very advanced people have um, that uh, enables them just by their presence. And it's not personal. It's nothing they're doing. It's the spirit moves through them. It moves through them, and, and whoever's open is going to receive uh, prashad. Prashad is a, a gift, a blessing. Love, It's dessert. <laughs> you're going to get something sweet um, if you're open to it. And I'm sure that there were a number of people who uh, felt that way, who had experiences like that in the presence of Swamiji because it was just what he was, and there's no personal volition there. It just happens. Later, I connected the dots, but I'll come back to that another time. I'm trying to give you some idea of what happens when you dip your toe into the nonlinear realm of spiritual power. It changes you. It cannot be spoken of, though we always end up embroidering words around it. It cannot be proved. It can only be confirmed by experience. You understand these are two different paradigms linear Newtonian material reality and spiritual reality. Spiritual reality can understand the Newtonian paradigm because it is of a an energy field of greater power than the Newtonian paradigm. But the Newtonian paradigm cannot understand the spiritual domain. It doesn't have the capacity. And when you encounter that dimension with your Newtonian mind, (laughs) it reframes everything radically. It's like that scene in the movie Contact. You remember that movie when the previously rigid Newtonian scientist and skeptic Dr. Arroway, Jodie Foster, who's awesome in that movie, comes back from her life-changing journey to the center of the cosmos to a tribunal demanding proof of her journey, telling her she's crazy, because she can't explain why from their perspective, quote, nothing happened and there was no passage of time. Whereas from her perspective, she was gone for, I don't know, something like 13 hours, went through wormholes to Vega and met her long deceased father on a beach. All she can say is, I had an experience I was given something wonderful and everything I am as a human being tells me it was real, that we belong to something that is greater than ourselves, that none of us is alone. I wish that I could share it, that everyone, even for a minute, could feel that awe and wonder and humility and hope. I'm putting that clip in the show notes for you because it's so good you feel that way. You feel like Dr. Arrowway come back. And you come back to a familiar world and a kind of cognitive dissonance where you have to make sense of an inner experience that has changed the way you relate to the familiar world and the people in it. And they can't share your experience so this was my state as I returned home to Canada to begin my contract at the Stratford Festival after the most momentous week of my life. Disoriented. That's how I felt. My husband and I were in a trilogy of shows together and showing up to the first day of rehearsal, not 24 hours after I landed, was like being an alien inside Claire's old life. It was bizarre. My condition was raw and emotional. I could feel tears brimming just under the surface all the time. Normally, the first day of rehearsal is a fun and joyous occasion. You get to come back together with people you know, you get to meet new people. You're celebrating the creation of a new world and a new group energy in storytelling. You look at costume sketches and set designs and you get to dive into all of the fun and adventure of a rehearsal period. I've always loved first rehearsal. It's always been something I looked forward to and was excited about. This was the first time I had ever felt like I was simply in the wrong place. What am I doing here? Was the question that kept coming back to me. I shouldn't be here. I can't be here. Images of my time in France flitted through my mind and I could feel tears coming to the surface. A number of people remarked on my changed countenance with curiosity and genuine concern once they realized that there was a palpable strain underneath the luminousness of my recent experience. Wow, what happened to you? I was asked. (laughs) The voice and body coaches in particular, always sensitive to the actor's psyche, they connected with me on the level of understanding. They'd known me for years anyway and they could tell something was up. The hours of rehearsal crept by achingly slowly. I was not interested. My mind wandered back to France. I looked at the June and September performance calendars, overlaying the dates of the next two trainings on top, wondering how I could make it work. Maybe I could do both? They'll never let me go, I thought. And why should they? I dreamed up subterfuges, only to let them dissolve, knowing I could never be dishonest about my absences. I had a contract. And that was it. Nobody had forced me to sign it and I should be grateful to be working. Once again I was ungrateful and dismayed at my ingratitude and at the same time every fiber of my being was telling me I couldn't do this. I crept off to cry in a stairwell during lunch. My husband eyed me with concern from across the rehearsal table. That evening I cried some more at home describing the feelings that had been with me all day. Then this pattern repeated itself for the first week of rehearsal growing more intense with each passing day. I agonized and debated quitting, running through different scenarios with my husband. Leaving meant a loss of significant income for us not to mention a change in situation he would have to adapt to. I talked to my agent who advised me that if I did leave it was certain I would never be asked back. I imagined what people would say and how my reputation would be ruined for backing out of a contract for some airy-fairy crazy reason. How I'd be leaving my colleagues in the lurch and for what? Was I crazy? How could I think of leaving my familiar security for a week in June and a week in September? What if I was delusional? I was up at 5 a.m. each day for my yoga practice with a video of my teacher I had found on YouTube. It just happened to be a Kriya for receiving answers. I hung on every word and performed the Kriya with gusto. Then on my breaks during the day, I went through my notes from the training week and began transcribing my recordings of our classes, doing everything I could to remain immersed in the feeling that was slowly dissipating as I returned to the rhythms of my old life. And I remained a captive of my own inability to step up and claim my destiny. The fear of what it would mean to abandon the old self and the mental confusion that accompanied it perpetuated the spiritual agony until one night as we neared the end of the first week of rehearsal, my husband gently but firmly put his foot down. "'You can't continue like this,' he said, as I added to the steamy bathwater with my dripping tears." You have to make a decision. It's not fair to the company, it's not fair to you, and it's not fair to me to put this off any longer. Get on the phone with the artistic director and tell him exactly what's going on. Just tell the truth. Earlier that day, I had also met with one of the voice coaches that I feel connected with in the local coffee shop and poured out my heart about the life-changing experience I had been through and my agony of indecision. She had compassionately listened and encouraged me to follow my heart. You'll regret it if you don't, she said. These two conversations on the same day helped turn the prow of my ship. I called the artistic director and left a message saying I needed to speak with him as soon as possible. Then I wrote out all my thoughts so I would have concrete notes in front of me for that conversation, which happened the next day. As soon as I heard his voice on the phone, my anxiety ramped up. This was probably thinking back, the first time in my life, I had gone against the grain, professionally speaking, and risked the displeasure of those whom I considered to have decision making power in my career, I would have done anything to avoid that before. So this was the opposite of the approval seeking self who needed to be liked and validated more than being true to myself. Back then, it really felt like a risk. My nervous system was firing fight or flight on all cylinders. I was tremulous and shaky, but I took a deep breath and spoke, maybe for the first time, my truth. Slowly and clearly, I explained to him that I had been through a life-changing experience only a couple weeks before, that it was unexpected, that I was profoundly marked by it, and that now I was questioning my path forward that I had agonized all week over the conflict between my desire to follow this calling and my loyalty to the company and my contractual obligation. I felt him listening as I articulated with a trembling voice everything I had carefully written out the night before. Finally, I concluded and asked for his help in finding a way forward. And then I held my breath, awaiting his reply. I think this is wonderful he said wonderful he said wonderful it's amazing to have an opportunity like that and I totally support you taking advantage of it don't worry about anything I'll take care of it all there was no censure in his voice there was no mention of the inconvenience I was putting him to not to mention the others There was kindness, compassion, gentleness. I was overcome with a rush of love and affection for him and felt a new level of honesty settle in between us that I had never known before. I was always in the mask because he was the artistic director and I was an actor. (laughs) It wasn't a real relationship until this moment. Suddenly I felt warm and flooded with relief and celebration. To be seen and heard in my truth was a new experience. To just be myself the way I was in that moment was a new experience. To not have an agenda to be worrying about gain or loss was a new experience. And. I could still do my concert because I forgot to mention that the thing I was most looking forward to that season was one night of music, a concert that I had been allowed to schedule as part of the forum because I was singing again. I had started to sing again after so many years, which is a whole other story but it was the first occasion I had to come out as a singer publicly and to sing purely for the joy of it as a soloist and with the support of some of my favorite musicians and singers. I got to choose all the music and it was gonna be arranged and we were gonna perform it. It was just gonna be a beautiful occasion. And I had assumed that if I left the company, I would have to give up this privilege as a form of punishment. But as our conversation continued, I realized how much the assumption of punishment was really just my own projection onto the world. That in my belief system at the time, to tell the truth about what was important to me and what I needed to do was wrong somehow. To follow my heart was an inconvenience to others and that a price would have to be paid in return. Clearly this was an old pattern, probably predating this lifetime. Well, once again, he confounded my expectations. Of course, you can do your concert, he said. You should. Let's keep that on the schedule because you'll be back in time and then you can schedule those rehearsals on your own, right? (laughs) Well, I could have cried, and I did, from relief and gratitude this time. My heart was just taking flight. And once again, I was overcome by the goodness of grace acting in my life. I'm not punished, I'm not rejected. I'm not a pariah. I'm not vilified. No, I'm supported, encouraged, loved. In fact, everywhere I turned with the news that I was withdrawing from the company, I was met after the initial concern that I might be withdrawing due to some kind of misfortune with absolute support and inspired encouragement. Wow, what an amazing opportunity I heard. I wish I had the courage to do that, I heard. This is wonderful, amazing, meant to be, so exciting, wanted adventure, I heard over and over, including from those I inconvenienced by my sudden change of plans. Moreover, my replacement was a fine actress I knew and respected, who was happy to take over because it was exactly the right situation for her. I could see that following the heart was the way to the highest good for everyone, and it gave everyone a chance to step up and be the best version of themselves. Looking back, that situation revealed a clear pattern of hiding and an inability to just be as I am. But it's not surprising, given that I didn't know what that was. Who does? I mean, I went through eight years of therapy, entertaining my therapist. <laughs> that was what I did, and never getting into anything real. I did have someone to talk to in the wake of my father's death, which happened about a year into my therapy, and, and obviously I needed that. But otherwise, I remained on the surface, unaware of my own faints and self-delusion. I often talked about how well things were going, as if my problems were really just a side bar. And I continued to arrange and improve the mask of my ego. I'm sure I came across as very well adjusted. I have no idea if I fooled my therapist or not. And when I left therapy to get married for the first time, I treated that upcoming life event as the evidence that all was well, and I was successful and normal, and I didn't need therapy anymore. Man, what a lot of wasted money and time. Sorry, mom. (laughs) I could fake it with the best of them and convince everyone how together I was, including myself. Years later, my teacher said to me, you are—you have such a clever mind, you fool everyone, especially yourself. As I finally told the truth about what was going on with me and told myself the truth that I didn't want to be an unhappy actor anymore and instead wanted to find what was real in me, It was like shedding 15 pounds and getting a haircut. I felt reborn. I felt light, buoyant, filled with gratitude and good humor. I shared the news that I was planning two more trips to France and began teaching yoga classes with vigor to save up money for my trainings. I'd had to pay back some of my salary, already dispersed, and I had no job and no prospects. And boy, my supportive husband watched it all from the sidelines. I knew I had to make something work in all of this, but I also knew that I wouldn't starve. He could see that I was overjoyed to be embarking on this new adventure and he was happy for me. Of course, I had no idea what I was getting into, but I was sure that I was being propelled into a new life and I trusted that on the other side of the doorway, I would be guided to whatever life held for me next. So you see, saying yes to the call of the soul And entering the unknown, as frightening as it was, and as much resistance as I had to doing it, was extremely liberating. The first step had been humility. The crack in the ego's armor, which had happened during my week in Vancouver, earlier in the fall, when I finally stopped resisting the current, wherever it was taking me. Then the week with my teacher blew my old world apart, irretrievably. And a choice was required through courage and definitely accompanied by the support of people who loved me and I couldn't have done it without them. I went from the suppression of years worth of fear, anger, dread and grief to exhilaration and my vibrational state soared along with it. I was catapulted into a new level of consciousness where I could finally begin to undo the carefully constructed mask of falsity that I had thought of as me. We all have a mask of falsity. This doesn't mean that you're a fake and insincere person or a bad person. Everybody's got a mask. The mask is a collection of programs and thoughts we've believed in, protected by a fearful ego, who's very keen that you never look behind the curtain. It has no ultimate reality. But when we don't know anything but the mask, and we start to take it apart, there be dragons, as it used to say on the old seafaring maps of the areas that were unknown. We don't know what we are truly. We don't know until we know. And for most people, it's not an instant transformation. The realizations increase over time. And the more experiences of truth we have, the more the mask is painfully obvious, our own and everyone else's. And this awakens compassion. Most people will avoid going there at any cost. It's too painful. It destroys your whole concept of reality. You have to go to hell and back, but it begins to fall away. And then you don't know who you are anymore. If you can handle the pressure, you keep going. There be dragons. And you set your sails for there. I had spent years rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, but that ship was about to go down. I'll tell you more about that the next time. Thanks for spending this time with me today. I'll see you again soon. Meanwhile, walk in grace.
0: Thank you for joining me in the grace space where you're always in the right place. If you love this podcast, I invite you to subscribe to it and submit a review if you feel called to do so. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter right here. I look forward to spending this time with you again next week. Meanwhile, I send you love and blessings. Bye for now.